This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Inflation is high. Prices are rising at 7.5% annualized, and consumers are not happy about it. It's one of the biggest political problems facing the Democratic Party. Inflation is so high that real incomes are falling for most people who are working, and that has people very upset. But I think our conversation about inflation and what's to be done about it has sometimes gotten a little lost, in part because we've under-theorized where the inflation is coming from. Of course, the broad claim that the inflation has to do with COVID is true, but I wanted to invite someone on who was more ahead of the curve on inflation than me and then a lot of economic commentators, who was warning a year ago that inflation was quite possibly going to be getting out of hand and that we had to be ready for that. My guest today is Jason Furman. Jason was the chair of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. He co-teaches Principles of Economics, the undergraduate introductory economics course at Harvard, and he's a non-resident fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Hi, Jason. Hello. So one question that I get a lot is why public opinion on the economy has gotten out of step with the actual numbers. And I would note that that's how people pose the question to me. They don't ask whether it's gotten out of step. These are liberals usually asking this question. It's simply asserted that the economy is better than how people feel about the economy right now. And, and they have data points to point to. GDP is rising quickly. Unemployment is low. It's a good time to look for a job. And in fact, people will tell you it's a good time to look for a job if that's the specific question you ask them in a poll. Yet 77% of respondents tell Gallup that economic conditions right now are only fair or poor. So is the public discontent with the economy, is that out of touch with the, with the real numbers? Josh, I usually try to listen to the public. You know, people can be confused about things like inflation. You know, they can think they deserve their pay raise, but the inflation was something that happened to them, even <laughs> if those two are linked. But, you know, I do think there's the fact that inflation affects everyone. Maybe not as much as they think it does, but it affects everyone. And the job gains we've seen are just for a subset of Americans. And by the way, the subset of Americans were so well protected last year that they haven't even really seen their purchasing power rise as a result of getting those jobs. Because the unemployment payments and other, other transfer payments were so extensive as a result of the COVID relief packages, you mean? Yeah. This is a speculative view of mine. I don't have proof. But in the Great recession. If you got a job in 2010, you were thrilled because you weren't getting much from unemployment insurance and you were terrified you weren't going to get a new job. Now, getting a job is good, but it's a little bit more mixed because at least, you know, last year you would have lost your unemployment benefits. You're maybe face to face and nervous about COVID. And by the way, you weren't that nervous because you know there's so many jobs out there. You could have always taken them a month or two from now. So I think jobs are actually almost a little bit more marginal to people now than they normally would be coming out of a recession. And inflation is salient for everyone. I think in general, if I were in government, it's a bit of a losing proposition to tell people you feel better than you say you feel. Right. Um, so I sort of <laughs> err on the side of taking as given People have a set of problems. What can we do to speak to those problems, empathize and solve them rather than dismiss them? But I agree it is a mixture of you know, overstated problems and real problems with an unclear ratio of those two. 
Elizabeth Warren tends to talk about inflation as a corporate greed problem, that companies have raised prices more than they had to of their own volition. You hear talking points like this from a lot of Democrats, to some extent from the Biden administration. Some of those talking points from the Biden administration focus specifically on the meatpacking industry, saying, you know, you look at meatpacking, it's this bottleneck meatpacking companies in this consolidated industry. They're paying less to the suppliers of livestock, and they are charging more uh, to the retailers that they sell the meat to, and that that's where you can see this increase happening. And it's happening because there's not enough competition in the industry. That if the industry was more fragmented, if you broke up some of these companies, there would be more of an incentive for the companies at that point where there's the limitation, where there's only so much meatpacking capacity in the country, they'd be more inclined to hire more people to invest and expand. And you'd get more meat. You'd, you'd get that excess demand for meat being addressed on the quantity side instead of the price side. And meat prices wouldn't be so high. So what, what do you make of that, both the general claim about greed as a driver of inflation, corporate greed, and then also the specific claim that you're seeing the choices of a few companies in the meatpacking industry, that they are specifically driving the inflation in meat prices, which is one of the salient parts of inflation that people really experience? I think it is possible that that is a reasonable argument to make in meatpacking. There are very few other areas of the economy um, where you can argue it. Just to step back and do the economics, some people call it greed. In economics class, we call it profit maximization. <laughs> and that's a pervasive feature of the economy. So in some sense, it's trivially true that prices went up 7.5% because of decisions that companies made to maximize their profits. Private employment also went up by 6 million jobs in 2021 because of private decisions made by corporations to maximize their profits. Uh, when they make their decisions, they're making them in part based on incentives. Um, one of the incentives is you give people more cash, they have more cash to spend, and that changes the calculus. Now, when that happens, businesses want to do two things. They want to sell more products and they want to charge higher prices. And usually they do some combination of the two of those. Even if there was lots and lots of competition, you would, at least in the short run, see higher prices and higher profits because new firms can't enter to compete those profits away um, instantly. Even with a monopoly, you might actually see them want to increase their quantity and sell more rather um, than jack up their prices. And by the way, if prices hadn't gone up and many more people were trying to buy meat you know, where would all that meat come from? Would you have even more bare shelves? So a lot of the economics of this discussion has gotten a little bit confused. And for the most part, I don't find greed that useful a hypothesis because it's unchanging. I don't find it that useful a basis for a policy answer because in most of the economy, there's not really an antitrust problem. But, you know, should you go after the meatpacking industry? I, I think that might be one of the reasonable examples. So one conversation I've seen a lot of over the last few weeks is the extent to which these supply problems, they clearly affect the prices of specific items. The price of cars has been driven up like crazy by this semiconductor shortage. How important is this stuff to the overall inflation rate? And it's basically, you know, if, if we didn't have a semiconductor crunch and we had significantly greater auto production than we have right now and car prices were lower, would that be showing up as lower overall inflation or would consumers just be taking that savings from the fact that the cars were less expensive and using it to go out and buy more of everything else and pushing up the price of other things? Is inflation overall actually significantly driven by these sector-specific supply issues or is inflation just you know something that comes from monetary and fiscal policy and that is not affected much in the aggregate by these specific sector stories? 
From month to month, these sector stories can matter a lot and create a lot of volatility that you want to look through. From year to year, these sectoral stories are probably a very small part of the picture and you want to look at the overall macro. It is definitely a mistake to do what some people have done, which is say, oh, if car prices weren't going up, inflation would be X percentage point lower. And they do that by zeroing out the car inflation and keeping all the other inflation the same. Because if people weren't spending all this extra money on cars, they'd have more money. They'd be spending more money on something else. And by the way, you know, restaurants are in pretty short supply in our economy too. If a lot more people wanted to eat out, those prices would have gone up even more than they did. So it's definitely a mistake to say it's all sectoral, we're going to zero it out. On any given month, that's not terrible. You know, year after year, um, it probably is. And the fact is, whenever we've got inflation, it's always been uneven. It's not like inflation means the price of everything goes up 7.5%. We got inflation in the 60s and the 70s. You know, 70s for a while, people were talking about Peruvian anchovies. Peruvian anchovies went way up in price, and there was a shortage of Peruvian anchovies, and that spread throughout the economy, and that was why we have inflation. What fraction of consumption is Peruvian anchovies? It's not like the auto industry. Right. I think they were using fertilizer for a bunch of other stuff. Seriously, huh. look it up. Like, Peruvian anchovies was okay. part of the story that people told, but that was like a dumb sideshow story, not even dumber than the auto story, which is not which is not ludicrous and laughable. But yeah, it, it always inflation always looks micro because there's always some things growing faster than others. But inflation ultimately is almost always macro when you're looking over one, two, three or more years. Well, I mean, to, to, to stay on the 1970s for a second, I mean, maybe there was a, an, an exogenous supply shock in, in Peruvian anchovies, but I, more importantly, there was a supply shock in oil. Was the oil shock a significant driver of the 1970s inflation, or is it, you know, sort of in the way that you're describing here, if it wasn't oil, the money would have just gone into something else, and really the 70s inflation was a story about monetary policy, and the, the oil shock was sort of incidental to it? Yeah, I never knew about the oil. I just knew about the anchovies. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, the, uh, no, I mean, inflation was building up throughout the 1960s. Inflation was rising up you know, before the oil shocks. The oil shocks were certainly a part of it, but then the way the Fed responded to those oil shocks was a big part of the story too. And I think most economists looking back on the 70s treat the inflation less as an oil shock and more as one longer continuous period of monetary policy, fiscal policy, inflation expectations, demand, and the like. So then if... The inflation that we're experiencing right now did not fundamentally come from these supply side issues, didn't come from semiconductors and the auto side. It did not in the aggregate come from these things. Is the story that, that it's about COVID disruption, is that story just wrong? Is it that this inflation that we are seeing, it came from fiscal and monetary policy choices that were made over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think the COVID disruption story is mostly wrong. And look, we had a very clean experiment. In 2020, we had a very big COVID disruption. What did it do to inflation? Inflation went down. Inflation went down even though we gave people a decent amount of money in the face of that COVID disruption. In the first half of 2021, the common view was we're getting inflation because we're coming out of COVID and people are willing to spend and the like. Then we went back deeper into it at the end of 2021 and we still had inflation. So COVID has complicated effects. It can raise some prices. It can lower other prices. I think on balance, 
It's probably more likely to lower than to raise, but in some cases, the opposite may be true. Whatever it is, though, I don't think it's the biggest story. I think the biggest story is that people have more money to spend. If you had given every household in the country a million-dollar check, you would observe shortages at stores. You would observe shipping you know, lines being clogged up at ports. You would observe a lot of the things we did, even in a non-COVID economy, if you give people more money than you can stuff that we can make. And so you you became a brief conservative hate figure a few months ago for describing more, more or less what you just described here, that basically, you know, this repeated series of large fiscal interventions is a key driver of the inflation. You also called that a high class problem, basically saying that, you know, well, the, these in- interventions, they were inflationary, but they also, you know, they they kept people afloat and they kept consumer demand such that we could come back pretty strongly in terms of GDP growth and job growth into this year. People had the money to buy goods and services, which which meant that, that employers were motivated to hire and expand in order to sell those things. So even if we had done less of that, we would have lower inflation. Was it your view? Is it still your view that we'd be worse off because we'd have other different problems related to output and employment that would be worse than the inflation problem we're experiencing? There's two propositions I'm certain are false, and frankly, I'm embarrassed for the people who advance these propositions. (laughs) One is that spending the amount of money we did created lots of jobs, added a lot to growth, and had zero effect on inflation. And the other proposition that you hear on a different set of television channels is the exact opposite of that, that spending all this money got us lots of inflation and had nothing to do Uh, with jobs or economic growth. The truth is somewhere in between those two. I don't know for sure what the answer is. I have a pretty strong suspicion that, say, the last $500 billion we spent, we got a lot of inflation and not a lot of jobs, and so the cost-benefit on that was bad. For the package as a whole, I would have, even in the benefit of hindsight, have voted up rather than down if that was my only choice. I'm sorry, when you say the package as a whole, do you mean just the American Rescue Plan, the one that passed in in the very beginning of 2021? Or do you mean the series of packages going all the way back to CARES in March 2020? I was saying December plus March, which was $2.8 trillion, Mm -hmm. or even just the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion. I think I still would have voted for that because on balance, more good than harm Um, came out of it. But it should have been like 1.4 instead of 1.9 or something like that. Yeah. Or I think it probably should have been one, but uh, I think almost definitely 1.4. And then I'm happy to debate about numbers below that. So yeah, I think it's just what was your cost benefit for each dollar? Well, it got worse. The cost for inflation got worse as you added money. And you were just getting yourself up against a constraint. There's only so many people that wanted to work. There's only so fast you can expand output. So as you added more and more money, you basically got fewer and fewer jobs for each dollar you added and more and more inflation for each dollar that you added. What is there to do about that now? Because, you know, there's this talk about, you know, oh, is inflation, was this transitory? And did the at first, that sort of became associated with the idea that, you know, oh, it's just, you know, a few months of COVID-related disruption. But that something is transitory just means it's going to stop whether or not the Fed intervenes to stop it. That doesn't mean it's going to stop on any particular timeline. And I also think it, it doesn't mean it has to come from the supply side. It doesn't have to be just about semiconductors and the port of Long Beach and all of that sort of stuff. 
The money that we gave out in the American Rescue Plan, the enhanced unemployment, the stimulus checks, that's all water under the bridge. That should not be causing ongoing inflation, right? That should have caused like a one-time increase in the price level. And then there's some delay in the effect because people didn't spend the money right away necessarily when you gave it to them. We saw a lot of household saving here. So is there like that effect should roll off over some period, right? And no longer be a driver of inflation. I guess the question is, you know, when when does that period end? Am I thinking about that correctly? I don't know, because it gets to this deeper question. There's something in economics called the Phillips curve. And in the Phillips curve, do you think of inflation as a function of unemployment? Or do you think of the change in inflation as a function of unemployment? And in some ways, you don't need to understand the whole Phillips curve um, to understand this point, which is there is an open question. How much is it that inflation is always going to be, let's say, 2%, and then you can temporarily go above or below it depending on what you do, versus inflation is going to be what it was last year, and then it's going to go up if you do certain things, and it's going to go down if you do other things. If you have that first view, anything is almost by definition temporary. That's the way the world was functioned for the last couple decades. But before that, you had a world that was a little bit more like, you know, inflation went up and then it stayed up unless you did something to bring it down. So there's a, it's sort of an open question about how the economy functions. And this gets back to the expectations that people have. If people expect inflation, they're going to raise prices more. If they raise prices more, there'll be more inflation. Or have we had so long of 2% inflation that that's not a danger? Or can something like that become unstuck and you can almost move to a new inflation rate without continuing to push? And so when you talk about if people expect inflation, then they act on that in a certain way. People didn't really expect this inflation. Like the Fed's forecasts of inflation, knowing all of the things that you described about the, the things that we had done to the economy and the things that were strange in the economy, the Fed just expected much lower inflation than this. The financial markets seem to have gotten this wrong. Even you got this wrong. I mean, you were more right than a lot of the other commentators, but you were not expecting 7.5% inflation. Yeah, absolutely. I was less wrong, Uh, not right. (laughs) Um, And I, I think of inflation as two things. There's this inflation expectations, which is so hard to pin down or figure out whose expectations matter and what it means. And then there's all the real stuff that adds and subtracts to it. And in 2021, Fiscal policy was adding a lot to it. You sent people checks, they spent it. Monetary policy is continuing to add to it. The Fed is continuing to hold interest rates very low, and that is also adding to it. There's been a handoff to people. As fiscal policy went down, wages um, went up, and that also enabled more spending. So there's a set of real factors related to the unemployment rate, the quits rate, fiscal policy, monetary policy, those I can look at and quantify and understand to some degree. And then there's this bizarre thing called inflation expectations. In 2021, the inflation was all that real stuff. It was like money sloshing around in the economy that changed prices. The worry in 2022, 2023, that even if you have less sloshing around, This other term, the inflation expectations term, is the one that starts driving the inflation even more. 
And so what should our objectives be here? I mean, one perfectly valid objective is Democrats would like to win elections and they would like the public to be satisfied with economic indicators, including the inflation rate. So one, one reason that you might need to bring inflation down is the public is, is looking for you to do that. But the way that flows through into how people feel and into how the economy works for people is imperfect. I guess, first of all, why inflation bothers people? I mean, I guess, it, you know, it sounds like an obvious question, like, you know, my, your purchasing power is going down. But if your wage increases are keeping up with inflation, and if you, you know, interest rates are about to go up again, if you are earning interest on your bank balances for the first time in a while, that will also presumably make you a little bit more zen about price levels going up. Is it that people were really bothered by being caught off guard by inflation? They had not been prepared for a 7% annual increase, whereas, you know, if we settled into some stable level of inflation at something above the 2% target, if it was 3 or 4%, would that be a satisfactory outcome so long as people knew it was coming down the pike, even if it was a higher number? Or is there is there a particular reason that a, that a lower inflation number is actually better, either for some substantive reason or because people will feel better about it? Unexpected inflation is definitely a problem because it causes all sorts of arbitrary redistribution that no one was planning to do. And the most important one that it can cause and that we've seen over the last year is a redistribution from workers to businesses, real wages going down, profits going up. And that's because prices of products change more frequently um, than wages do. So it's not a surprise that when you get a surprise burst of inflation, it hurts workers and it helps um, business profits. So definitely, I don't think anyone would defend the idea that you want inflation, you know, jumping around up and down and especially up a lot. Steady inflation, economies adapt to that um, just fine. For myself, I think a world of 3% steady year in and year out inflation with everything going up faster as a result would be better than a world of 2%. Uh, year in and year out inflation, but we're pretty far from either of those worlds right now. The other thing with with unexpected inflation, though, is it, it creates some winners who I don't think realized they were winners. And, and th this isn't a reason that like unexpected inflation is desirable or anything on balance. But I think one weird thing about the politics is that you get you get all the blame for people who get caught on the wrong side of inflation and the people who benefit from it, which particularly, you know, if you own a home and you have a fixed rate mortgage on the home and inflation causes the nominal price of your home to go up, even if real prices aren't going, real prices are also going up, but even if they weren't, the nominal price goes up because there's been inflation. But your monthly mortgage payment is unchanged. Um, so you come out ahead from that. Basically, you have had a real reduction in your monthly cost to be housed. People don't seem to perceive that as, hey, inflation went up and that meant I, you know, I saved money on, you know, on living in a home. I agree. Another group that's well protected from inflation is senior citizens. If you're Social Security has a COLA, cost of living adjustment. This year, the cost of living adjustment, which is based on the overall inflation rate, appeared to be larger than the inflation rate that's measured for the stuff that senior citizens um, actually buy. But, you know, you try to explain to a senior citizen, don't worry, you got a cost of living adjustment. Um, they think, you know, something, you know, unfair happened to them. The whole cost of living adjustment was taken back by the higher prices. By the way, one more thing about inflation that I think progressives might want to worry about if I went up and gave a speech that the minimum wage is too high, I want to cut it by 7.5%, or the child tax credit is too large, I want to cut it by 7.5%, <laughs> um, you would think those were pretty terrible ideas. That's what we've, in effect, done. The minimum wage federally is still $7.25 an hour. That's worth a lot less than it was last year. The child tax credit is actually one of the features of the tax code that's not indexed to inflation. So it's $2,000 year in and year out. 
that also effectively was cut by 7.5% over the last year, a time when people wanted to increase it. So there's a set of things related to low-income and vulnerable people that do get hurt by inflation if you don't do something about it. So you have, we're probably about to embark on a campaign of interest rate hikes for this purpose of containing inflation. What other effects does that have in the economy? Because I mean, one thing, when President Biden has talked about inflation, he says, you know, we have this choice between expanding the capacity of the real economy or pushing down people's income so that they don't go out and try to buy so much. This is going to have negative effects. The higher interest rates that they work by cooling the economy, right? That has certain negative effects that people will feel. Yeah. I mean, just stepping back, I would to deal with inflation, do everything that's good to do and helps with inflation. That's what the president's doing. The ports, the semiconductors, maybe the greater antitrust enforcement. You know, Josh, you've argued if people go out to you know, eat more and live their lives more normally, that'll help with inflation. I'm not positive that's true that it'll help with inflation, but it's a really good thing to do. So if anything is good for the world and you would have wanted to do it even if there wasn't inflation and it helps with inflation, you want to do it even more. Then, once you've exhausted that, um, you're probably still nowhere near the type of inflation rate you want. And so then you need to do things where there's some trade-off. You wouldn't have done them if inflation was low, but you need to do them because inflation is high. And yeah, no one wants to phrase it this way, but what the Fed is doing is going to raise mortgage rates to make it harder to take out a mortgage, to make it harder to buy a new home. And that will cool off some of the crazy price increases we're seeing in the housing sector. Cars, raising auto loans, making it harder to buy a car, making it harder for businesses to take out a loan and the like. So there are some real trade-offs there. And then what is the role of fiscal policy here? I mean, in addition to the Fed raising interest rates, another thing that in terms of macroeconomic policy that governments can do to try to tame inflation is they can raise taxes and or cut spending, and that reduces purchasing power and and also cools off the economy. You have Joe Manchin, um, who uh, has killed the current form of the Build Back Better uh, suite of social and environmental policies that Democrats wanted to do. He's talking about they could do some other sort of spending package, but he wants significant deficit reduction as part of that, not just paid for, more than paid for. Is that something that would tend to reduce inflation? That absolutely would reduce inflation. That's not the way I would reduce inflation. And the reason why I would put, and most economists would put most of the job on the Fed or the central bank, depending on what country you are in, is that they're more technocratic. They're also more nimble and reversible. It is an open question how transitory this is, how permanent it is, how quickly it comes down on its own. If the Fed raises rates too high, it can turn on a dime and lower them again if it needs to. Now, that's not super easy. Policy matters with a lag, but they can do it a lot more easily than Congress and the president can. So I don't think Congress and the president have the capability to meet together like the FOMC, the the Fed does, every six weeks and look through all the data and decide whether spending or taxes um, need to go up or down based on the inflation number. So I'd have the Fed do that. I'd have Congress focus on longer term priorities, what we need in terms of climate change and inequality and health care and whatever else. And the only exception I'd make to that is if the Fed is tapped out, 
then you need Congress. So if they've cut interest rates to zero and they can't cut interest rates anymore, then you do actually need a fiscal stimulus from Congress to help employment and maybe even to help increase inflation. But the Fed is not tapped out in the other direction. It can raise interest rates as high as it wants. No need for Congress to raise taxes or cut spending. How should the surprise inflation change the way we evaluate how well the Fed has been doing its job. Should they have seen more of this coming? Are there different policy choices they should have made in the last year in light of, of what's happened? Or was this just you know unavoidable even with the Fed doing as well as it possibly can? Fed did a spectacular job in 2020 of keeping the financial system together. At the time, it was a real possibility that we'd have a financial crisis on top of all of our other problems. We didn't. In 2021, the Fed, at the very least, uh, no one could accuse it of being ahead of the curve. Um, They were roughly thinking the same thing as everyone else, but they should have been thinking something better than everyone else. They have more PhD economists um, and more smart people working on these topics, and they were never ahead of the curve in their inflation forecasts, their understanding of the dynamics. I think fundamentally, they entered 2021 with a new framework, a new way of approaching things. They called it flexible average inflation targeting. And then a massive fiscal stimulus happened, but they never really adjusted their framework and their outlook and their approach, even though circumstances weren't the circumstances they had expected uh, when they adopted that new framework in August of 2020. Just to to describe to everyone a little bit more about what happened there, if people have forgotten the political history, Democrats come out of the November election with at least 48 seats in the U.S. Senate. People are preparing for this idea that Biden is going to have to make bipartisan policy uh, with Republicans who are going to be resistant to extensive additional fiscal stimulus. Then Democrats manage to eke out these two wins in Georgia. They get a precisely tied Senate. Um, There are still open questions about the extent to which they can really get all 50 Democrats in the Senate on board for a really big uh, American rescue plan, one that you described being significantly larger than you thought was appropriate. And then they do, in fact, get that through. People have watched so much failure around the Build Back Better Act politically that people sort of forget the triumph that that was of, of coalitional politics in the in the Congress, that they got this very narrow Democratic majority to approve that. Basically, the Fed should have looked at that, in your view, and said, gee, the Congress just did this really inflationary thing that's going to require us to adjust our stance so that we can achieve the same inflation positioning that we thought we were going to have with much less fiscal stimulus out of Congress. Basically, the Fed was going to have to do more to support the economy. They did not dial back in the way that was sort of implied by what had happened in Congress. Exactly. And, and so there's there's two concerns that one can have about that. One is, you know, the, it's a substantive policy error. And one, now the Fed is going to have to do some somewhat painful things in order to correct it. The other is about the extent to which the Fed's political independence is fragile. And, and you described that, you know, that you, you like the Fed better for responding to inflation than Congress because it can be more technocratic, because it, has, it can be more nimble because of this legal authority that has devolved to it to make these decisions without approval from various you know, political officials. The, the people who sit on the Federal Reserve Board have to be confirmed by Congress and named by the president. But once they're there, they are the ones who get, who get to decide how to make these policies. Presumably, if there is significant dissatisfaction with how the Fed acts, you could have changes in that political environment. Either you could have changes in the law that governs the Fed that would take away certain authorities, um, or you could have changes in who gets appointed to the Fed 
and how responsive they are to, to different political forces. So how much do you, do you worry about that? I mean, I, I think we want an independent Fed, but we also want the Fed that that has earned and deserves its independence. So what does that you know what does that mean for Jay Powell and other people on the Fed in terms of how to respond over the coming years to maintain the the significant political capital that they built up? I mean, when I wrote a profile of, of Powell about a year and a half ago for New York Magazine, one remarkable thing about him was the strength of the relationships that he built on both sides of the the aisle in Congress with people who have very different views about exactly how monetary policy should work. There's a high level of trust that got built up in the Fed and in him personally. That's not something that you can take for granted, either you know, under his term with a very different inflation environment or under the next Fed chair. So what do you, what do, you do to keep a Fed independence that is working for the country? We're lucky that we have the Fed that we have. You look at every other institution in Washington, and they're divided up between the Democrats that are on it and the Republicans are on it. You know, that's true of the Federal Communications Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission. Much more importantly, that's true of the Supreme Court. And there's a low opinion of a lot of those institutions. I don't think most people have that much of an opinion of the FCC. (laughs) But I worry about (laughs) the way um, it can be partisan and divided. The Fed is not like that at all. Um, You have... President Obama, who reappointed the person his predecessor had appointed. President Trump didn't do that, but he reached for someone that President Obama had picked as a governor. So he didn't go wildly outside it. And when he tried to, Congress wouldn't confirm the people that were wildly outside it. Now President Biden has reappointed the same person that President Trump picked as chair. This just, could you imagine that on the Supreme Court? We're very lucky that it's a very different thing, but it can and only will be a very different thing if it's doing uh, a good job. For me, part of that says, you know, don't do what you did for the last year and handle this sort of inflation better. Um, It also says, sort of a little bit unrelated, don't do climate policy. I care passionately about climate change. I don't think there's a lot the Fed can do to solve climate change. Even if it could, it just isn't what half of the country wants. I wish they felt differently. I wish they passed a law. In Europe, the central bank deals with climate change where there's more of a consensus. Here there isn't. So, you know, preserve their credibility on the core thing they do, where they do have independence, which is this complicated trade-off between inflation and uh, the so-called real economy. The, the Fed and climate thing is is funny to me in the way that people talk about it because there's such a Mott and Bailey way in which it's discussed, where like the, the narrow claim is that financial institutions have certain risk exposure to climate change, either because you know they loaned against condos in Miami Beach and they're going to flood more, or because they loan to companies that make fossil fuels and there's going to be public policy uh, that phases those out and those those companies may be less credit worthy. And so basically saying, well, we, we want financial institutions to make more disclosures about those sorts of things. Uh, maybe the bank regulations about lending and risk should be adjusted for some of those sorts of things. And I don't, I don't think that stuff is, is crazy. Um, I also think it would have very little effect on the real economy. It wouldn't have that much of an effect on what the banks do. And even if it did, it would just change the way those things are financed. It wouldn't have large effects on you know, where people actually build condos and whether people are mining for coal. And in fact, the same people who are arguing for these, these actions around climate, when you talk about other bank regulations aimed at, at financial stability, they will tell you, I think usually correctly, this isn't going to have large effects on the real economy. It's just going to change the way bank balance sheets work so that we have less risk of a financial crisis, it doesn't actually impose large economic costs. They sort of flip around and talk about it in the opposite way. Like if you impose these climate regulations, it's actually a carbon limitation policy, which it isn't. And if it were, to your point, that would be the Fed getting you know way, out, way outside of its realm and doing something that would be very unpopular. 
And the progressive groups that have pushed for that were disappointed with Biden reappointing Powell, who has, you know, even as he's been fairly aggressive in ways that progressives like around monetary policy itself and full employment, he's been resistant of doing anything too creative on that. At the same time, one thing that is basically the consolation prize for those groups from Biden is that the other appointments he's made to the Fed board, I think, are ones that progressives have really wanted. It, It looks like a move of the Fed board to the left. You have Powell, who's a Republican at the top, but then you have a much more ideologically progressive set of people who are sitting on the Federal Reserve Board. Is that... Is that a good choice? Is that the right balance? Is, is, or is that, you know, are the Fed appointments, are they risking taking us in a position where the Fed does appear somewhat more politicized, especially because, you know, when if Biden is reelected and Powell does not serve a third term, either because of his choice or because Biden chooses to replace him, do we have what looks like a more partisan Democratic Fed board that is more susceptible to that sort of progressive pressure that maybe does end up undermining some of that political independence? Yeah, I love your point about, you know, saying regulation doesn't hurt the economy, but regulation can change things. I'm going to start using that. The first three times I used it, I'm going to credit you. And Thank thereafter, you. I'm just I'll going to claim three. it was my my <laughs> own idea. Um, the Fed does two types of things. One is monetary policy, setting interest rates, which affects inflation, unemployment, GDP growth. I don't expect that to be politicized. The people that President Biden has picked for that will be very good at that job and they'll do it in the same way that the Fed did it five years ago and five years before that. There's then the regulatory side of what the Fed does, and that already was a bit more politicized. Dan Tarullo, who was the regulatory point person in the Obama Fed, was pretty strong in bank regulation. He never had the title vice chair for supervision, but he was a very strong regulator. He was replaced by someone named Randy Quarles, who did get the title vice chair for supervision, who was much, much laxer and rolled back a lot of the banking regulations. And he was the, he was the Bloom, Trump choice for that. The Trump choice for that, yeah. correct. Yes. And then um, Sarah Bloom Raskin, who is the Biden choice for that, will bring a lot of those regulations back. So, you know, I wish that didn't oscillate back and forth as much, but that's a little bit more like all the other regulators work. And it's not that terrible. Um, Sarah Bloom Raskin, I hope she does not try to do every one of the things on climate change that she talked about as a private citizen and recognizes there's a distinction between throwing ideas into the debate about maybe how the world would ideally work and what you can and should do under the legislative mandate that you have. And, and you know, I, I think all his, his appointees should be, his nominees should be confirmed. The, the w- one hobby horse I, I have about that stuff, and, and Sherrod Brown, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Banking Committee, is, is fond of saying that the Fed has two equally important jobs, that it does monetary policy and it does bank regulation. This is just incorrect. The Fed has two jobs, one of which is much more important than the other. And the monetary job is more important in part because you have, you know, a whole constellation of financial regulators. And so in addition to just, you know, the bank regulation errors were a significant driver of the of the 2008 recession. Monetary policy errors have been a driver of essentially every recession. And then also you have, you know, if the Fed is not regulating as aggressively as you might like, you have the opportunity to work through the OCC and the FDIC and, you know, a half dozen other agencies that can do your regulatory agenda. So I think, you know, to the extent that progressives push on the regulatory agenda and it ends up undermining the Fed's political authority, moral authority, whatever, on monetary policy, I think that just ends up being a bad trade. Um, 
because whatever improvements you thought you got on bank regulation are just less important than undermining the Fed's ability to make good monetary policy. But anyway, that's just that's just my my Fed hobby horse. Uh, I think we should uh, leave it there this week. Jason Furman was the chair of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. He co-teaches Principles of Economics, the introductory undergraduate economics course at Harvard, and he is a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Jason, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious Newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me and special access to our thoughtful Very Serious community. Please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber because your subscription directly funds this independent newsletter and podcast. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo as in mayonnaise. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. Music